forget who you are. Our eyes grow dim and we see other things that seem more glamorous or interesting. And we forget how good you are. So we come this morning, we come to your word, come to the sword of your spirit. We come and ask that you would do that work in each of our hearts that we need. And only you know exactly what we need. Pray that you'd use the truth that's here as a lens so that we could see you, that we could see our lives, that we could see the world around us, and that our lives would be transformed. And so we, uh, we need you to do that. Work against that resistance that's there in each one of us, the tiredness that's there, um, the too much food we have eaten over this last week that's there, and ask that you would work in our lives this morning. Use me as your messenger. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Filling in for Bill, giving him a little bit of a break this week. He said family in this last week, so uh, allowing him to enjoy that. And uh, it's a privilege to be able to, to stand and to, to be able to share. God's been teaching me uh, from his word. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at this, this story, this event here of this woman who anoints Jesus with this incredibly expensive perfume. And I'm going to read verses 1 of chapter 26 through verse 15 just to give us a little context because I think it's important as we look at this picture, this story. Chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. We have a picture here that that Matthew gives us, something very important. And in in life, oftentimes, pictures are helpful. In many different spheres in in our life, you might be in one of those situations where you try to explain or describe something that only a picture will demonstrate, that only a picture will suffice in explaining what you're trying to get across. Sports is kind of one of those situations. And with the uh, Orange Bowl coming up here in just a few days, as an example... Um, oftentimes in football, as they're evaluating talent, um, 
not that I've done this, but as I've heard this, as they've evaluated talent of players, they will test different attributes of the player. How fast he is, how strong he is, how high he can jump, how hard he can throw, how quick his release is, on and on it goes, to try to quantify the skill of a particular player. However, what they, what they also want to identify are qualities which can't be quantified. And oftentimes what they'll do with a player, they'll ask, does this player have it? Does he have it? And what they mean by it is that indescribable, indefinable aspect that, that makes him a player. Does Todd Reesing have it? Is he a quarterback that has what it takes to win the game? And what they mean by that is, do they have that essence of what it means to be a football player? And what you have to do to, in order to, to understand that or to apprehend if that person has it, you have to watch them, you have to see them play, you have to watch them in action, and it will reveal much more than any test could show, how fast they are, how hard they can throw. Well, I'd submit that this story, this account that we have in front of us of this woman who poured this perfume on Jesus is a picture that reveals what it is as it relates to being a follower of Christ. There's lots of ways that we can characterize what it means to follow Christ. Quantify, you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church, you do these things. But there's also, there's an aspect of it, and I would say that is it. And we see it as we look at this woman, that she has it. That she understands what it means to truly be a worshiper of Christ. And as we look at this this morning, there's a few questions that I want to ask as, as we enter into, as we look at this picture and we ask, what is it? And how do we respond to that? How is it that we live our lives and we can learn from this picture? More than, if you will, more than what can be said, do this or do that, but to get below the surface, if you will, to see what she what's underneath there, and who she is and what drives her. The first question is, why is this here? Why is Matthew chosen to put this here for us? And what can we learn from the picture? The second question I want to ask really gets to the heart is, what is the essence of a follower of Christ? What is it that should drive us? What should be at the heart of us? And the third one is, what's the scope that Christ has as he is moving forward here? What is it that his intentions are to be? A little bit of context here as we move into chapter 26, of the Gospel of Matthew, it's, there's a transition, and you'll see it there, the first line of this chapter when Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, there's a transition from the last teaching that we have from Jesus in this Gospel, and it's a transition to the narrative about the passion of Christ. And so the trajectory is continuing, but the teaching has stopped, and now we see that the movement is now as Christ moves towards the cross. And these next three chapters, 26 through 28, is that movement in place as Jesus is moving to take his place to die for us. And so that's the, the, the context as we move into that. Chapter 26 itself is filled with an amazing accounts of different events that took place as Christ is moving towards the cross. You see there it begins with conspiracy as the high priest and the elders of the people gather together to begin their conspiracy, and you see that they wanted by self to take him because they wanted to kill him. And the chapter is ended, it's bracketed at the very end by the denial of Christ, which Christ himself predicted that Peter would do in the middle of it. In the midst of the chapters, a variety of pieces that, that continue. We have the, the Last Supper with the Lord as he celebrates Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper. We have Jesus, even as he tells the disciples what's going to happen to them, that they're going to scatter. 
And he tells Peter, you will deny me three times. And we have a prayer of Jesus as he is in Gethsemane and he pours his heart out to the Father and willingly accepts what the Father has and the plan for him. We have Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest, as he, he announces judgment on Christ, on Jesus, that he would go to the cross and die. And then it ends with this denial of Christ. And so it tells us a little bit of what's happening and where this particular passage is going. But what it's doing is setting up, like I said, two things. It's setting up all of these events take place with the view of Christ heading towards the cross. And as Christ attempts to establish and put in place the foundation of the church. He puts in place in this chapter what's necessary for the church to be established. We have the Lord's Supper that's instituted. We have his instruction to his own disciples about their falling away. And and then we have this this prayer in in, in Gethsemane as he pours his heart out before the Father. And yet, I think this story, this picture that we have of Mary, of this woman who pours out this perfume at the very beginning of the chapter, sets the tone and it sets the stage for the entirety of what will follow. The story itself is interesting. We have Jesus here. He's in the home, it says, of Simon the leper. We assume that this leper was one that Jesus had, had healed. Um, there's, we have no account of it, but we assume that that's the case, and he's identified as such. And then we have this woman who Matthew does not name, but we know that from Mark's gospel, or from John's gospel that it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha, that comes and she takes this very expensive ointment and she pours it on Jesus' head as he is at the table. And you see the response of the disciples, the response of those who were there. They, they, there's a couple things it tells us. Is that in, in Matthew tells us it's the disciples that respond in this way. That they're indignant at, upon the pouring of this expensive perfume on Jesus' head. That they're angry, they're frustrated. That word is a strong word. Jesus has, It's already been used in referring to Jesus earlier. When Jesus, uh, when the children were kept from coming to Jesus, it says that he was indignant that his disciples would keep the children from coming to him. And if you remember when uh, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says, will you give a place to the right and the left hand of, of, uh, of you at your kingdom so that my sons can sit there, the rest of the, the disciples were indignant. They were angry when they came and, and lobbied for those positions in his kingdom. And they were mad, they were angry. And so you see that the upon the, the waste, upon the pouring out, the expending of this perfume, they're angry and says that it could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. That their, their intentions maybe were good. John tells us a little bit differently. John in chi- chapter 12 tells us that really it was Judas who was leading this, this uh, work against Mary here and that his interests really were selfish and weren't really for the poor. But they were angry, but they asked the question, why this waste? And it's... It, at one level, it's reasonable because John tells us also that the amount that this was valued at was 300 denarii, which was approximately a year's salary of a worker. So it was a large sum of money. And I don't know, don't know what you make. Don't know. Just, but think about that. Put that in terms of what you make. A year's salary, put it into a jar, break it, pour it out, and in a few moments, it's gone. You would think the same thing. You would go, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of waste. That's a lot expended in a very short period of time on something that to the naked eye seems not terribly important. 
not terribly value, valuable. And so this, uh, this indignation that the disciples have at this situation, and you see they give Mary a, a fair amount of trouble for it, so much so that Jesus steps in and says, why do you trouble the woman? Why are you giving her grief? And you see what Jesus does? He reorients the picture, right? They have, a, they have a perspective on this. They see a huge sum of money completely wasted. And Jesus says, no, it's not waste. They haven't, she hasn't wasted anything, but rather what she has done is a beautiful thing. What she has done is good. What she has done has value. It is not wasted. And then Jesus concludes this, this account with this, um, call it a promise, call it a prophecy. I'm not sure what to call it, but he says that no matter where the gospel goes in the entire world, this story will be told of her. This story will accompany the gospel wherever it goes around the world. Now, what's interesting about this story, this picture, is that what John does, and when John places it in chronology, he places it six days prior to Passover. So six days, whereas Luke, in this, the, the context of this is two days prior to Passover. In the very first verse, you see in the second verse, it says that two days before Passover that this setting is. And so what Matthew's interests here aren't strict chronology. His interests aren't, I'm giving you a chronological account, but rather his interests are more of teaching. What he wants to do is illustrate something. So he takes this story, which happened just a few days prior, and he inserts it right here as he begins the passion narrative because he wants to demonstrate something. He wants to set the stage for what's to come. He wants to open the reader's eyes to who this Jesus is that is going to the cross. It's placed here at this particular point because he wants to teach us. Certainly Christ's body is prepared for burial. But more than that, the reader, as we walk through it, that, that we're sensitized. And some questions are beginning to be asked about this person who is heading towards the cross. So that we can better understand and better ask the right questions about who Christ is. And so the question is, why does Matthew put it here? What is his intentions? He wants to teach us, teach us and he wants to set the stage for what's going to follow. Well, how does he set the stage? How does that help us when we read this story, when we see this picture how does it help us in understanding Christ? Well, first, we see that there is a, fore, a foretelling. He foretells what will happen, but he's already done that. He's already told his disciples three times that he's going to die, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he'll be handed over to the chief priest, and he'll be crucified. He's mentioned that three times, but we have a picture here of how his disciples responded. We see their condition still, just a couple days prior to his death, that their condition is they still don't get it, that their interests... In, in this perfume is that what it would do for them, not so much what it would do for Christ. And so it reveals their condition. At the same time, this, this story, this picture, it seems to fly in the face of some teaching that, that was just prior that Christ offered in chapter 25. His last discourse, there's two, set, there's two parables that he tells. And in one parable, has to do with the wise steward who uses his resources well. And as he uses his resources well, he is rewarded. And you go, was she using her resources well? Does this fly in the face of that? Does this seem to, to be contrary to that teaching? And at the same time, the very last teaching that Matthew gives us, 
Jesus says and reminds us, and he says, that whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you've done to me. And it's a challenge and it's a call to us to help our brothers and sisters who are in need, who are hungry and thirsty and need clothing and are in prison. And he says, if you don't help them, you're, you're not helping me. And so does this waste that could have been used for, this, for, for helping the poor, does it fly in the face of the teaching of Christ? And I would say that it doesn't. Mary's act when she does this, it's not about resources. It's not about stewardship of resources. It's not about helping the poor or not. It does not disregard Christ's teaching, but it properly orients his teaching. It doesn't disregard what he has just said. It just orients it properly around the person who's given the teaching. Christ's teaching isn't primarily just go do this. It wasn't just about activity. What Christ was calling and what his point was, was to call worshipers. It was to make worshipers who would then go and serve. And so it orients it. And as we look at this picture, we see about Mary and we say, she has it. She understands what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, Mary, unlike the others in this picture, in this story, she gets it. She seems to understand what no one else does. I don't want to go too far. I don't know exactly what she knows and what she doesn't. But while all the others are concerned about preserving the money, about using it for the poor, she seems to understand that there's something else going on here. And so she is willing to take and to break this flask of ointment and to pour it on Jesus' head. She seems to understand where he's going. She seems to understand the great value of Christ, that she would take this and expend it in such a way. And she seems to understand that there's something that he is heading to the cross. And that this is necessary for her. This is necessary for him. And more than anything else, she sees how valuable he is in light of this ointment. In light of this perfume that she places on him. So her act is, is placed on purpose. It's placed in this setting as Jesus is heading to the cross. And it's interesting what Matthew does, and he places it here, you might notice, it's sandwiched between two other accounts, right? It's sandwiched between the high priest who is conspiring to kill him, and at the very end of this, verses 14 through 16, one of his closest disciples is selling him for a mere 30 pieces of silver. It's sandwiched right there, and it highlights all that Mary's done. It highlights the great value of Christ right on either side was hatred, maliciousness, and betrayal. This extravagant action, which is driven purely by, the, by gratitude and love for Christ, is juxtaposed between two hateful and malicious scenes. So it highlights what, who this Jesus is and who she is and what she's done for him. And it sets the stage for what will follow. Because the reader, if you read this, you're amazed by the amount... And what she would do, that she would pour it on his head, that she would anoint him in this way. But we should also be amazed by something else. And it should starkly get our attention of the man who receives this gift so easily and so readily. That he would be reclining at the table that someone would spend so much on him in this way. That for Jesus, it doesn't make any difference. It seems to be natural that he would receive that. And so we need to ask the question... Should that jar us? Is this man a normal man? Is he an ordinary person? How can he receive this? Such a great a gift, so lavish and costly a gift so easily. 
the same time, we need to ask, how can one be loved so much and hated at the same time so much? Loved by Mary and this gift poured out on her at the same time. Hated by those who were even close to him, that they would betray him for such a small amount of money. And who is worthy of this? So it's put here for a reason. It's placed here to give us a picture and to orient us and to set the stage for this Jesus is and for the reader to go, who is this man? Who would receive this? And that these people would love so much. Now, as we look at this as well, we want to ask the question, what do we do with it? Okay, we, we see what's happened. We see this is an amazing event, but what do we do with this? What is it here? It's here to reveal the it, if you will. The, what's behind what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a worshiper of him. As we look at Mary's actions, I don't know about you, but... One of the things that just has struck me is how much at one level I understand what's going on. I understand what she's doing, even though there's some cultural gap between pouring perfume on a person's head and that, that kind of activity. But I understand what she's doing, but what I don't understand, what I struggle with, is seeing Christ in such a way that I would expend so much on Him. What I don't understand is how much a person could value Christ in such a degree that they would spend so much on him. I have a hard time getting a hold of that, a hard time responding to that. My questions are rather something like this. Why give so much? Why, why just a little bit? Why not just a little bit? Or, or why so expensive of a perfume? You know, I mean, can't you get some old spice or some brute? You know, isn't there something like that that's going to, can't you do that? It doesn't cost quite so much and pour it on his head. I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm calculating. What, what, how much bang can I get for my buck here? Or maybe I don't pour the whole thing, just a little bit. You know, we teach our kids to give a little, save a little, spend a little. So let's give a little and we'll save a little. And I'll save a little bit for later on. See, our thinking is that this doesn't make a lot of sense. That she would take so much and then she would pour the whole thing out in one sitting on this man. Wouldn't just a little have been as, just as effective to anoint him? To prepare him for burial? Just a little bit? Well, Mark tells us and, you know, that this flask that she used was broken. And the flask was broken. And, and we know that as that flask was broken, there's a decision at the very point of breaking it. Because once the flask is broken, once the decision is made to break it in half, it is a decision to use it all. It's a, it's a decision to pour it all out. You can't save some once you decide to break it. She decided to break it. And in the breaking of it was a decision that was necessary to pour it all out on Christ. And so we have this woman who expended a great deal, probably didn't have much, expended it on Christ and this anointing and this, at this moment in time for Christ. And, and, and immediately following, we have this man who sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Not much at all in that day, by that day's wages. And the question we need to ask is, how do we make sense of this? What do we do with this? Well, I think simply put, that the, at one level, it's hard to understand. At one level, the only answer is really simply put, maybe Jesus meant that much to her. Maybe he really meant that much to her. That she would, she would look at the perfume and she would look at him and just say, this is nothing. Compared to the value of him, 
compared of knowing him, compared to who he is. This, this is nothing. No amount of perfume could I have would even come close to the value of Christ. And so it became natural for her to do that, that she would value him so much. And so we ask the question about Mary, what do we know about her? Why would she value Christ in this such a way? We don't know much, but there's one account that tells us something about her that is very interesting. In Luke chapter 10, if you would turn there. Trying to understand how she would come to value Christ. Chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This account of Mary and Martha, same woman, she's with her sister. Jesus comes through. I'm going to read through this section. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. As she went up to him, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. We have another situation here in which Jesus is asked, there's this request from Martha to instruct Mary, this one sitting at his feet and listening to get to work. You can see the picture. You can see Martha busy, you know, making preparation for Jesus for this meal that Jesus is going to eat, that Mar Mary's going to eat, that Martha's going to eat, and apparently there's others that are there also. And so she comes, and it seems to be a very reasonable request, unlike or similar to the request of the disciples about the, the, uh, the perfume, that she would get up and get to work, and she would help in the serving. And you see what Jesus does there. As Mary is there taking in what seems to be best, what is most valuable, Jesus says, I want to help you, Martha, reevaluate the situation. I want to help you analyze what's going on here and see what truly has value. Certainly the things that you're doing are good and they're important. However, there is something that is more important. There is something that's more valuable going on here. And we see that Mary has identified what that is. That Mary is sitting and listening. She is taking part in, in what is most valuable. She is sitting and she is listening at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says that this will not be taken from her. She has chosen the good portion, the best, the most valuable thing that she could choose and it will not be taken from her and so we see that Mary is tasting she has tasted the goodness of Christ she has tasted his value she has sat at his feet and learned from him and in the situation is with the perfume it's a very reasonable thing for her to do this in Mary's eyes nothing was wasted in the pouring out of the perfume because she already knew it had real value she had already determined in her mind what had absolute value. And everything else was, had value only in relation to the value of Christ. She wasn't so much calculating what would seem appropriate or what would seem reasonable or what would seem fiscally responsible. She was worshiping. And in her worship, nothing would be held back in the pouring out of this perfume. She desired Christ and she had him. And so the value of the perfume was only held in relation to him and what it would do for him.
Grateful, wholehearted worshipers naturally and joyfully yield sacrificial expressions of their love for Christ. You restate that. Grateful, wholehearted worshipers naturally and joyfully yield sacrificial expressions of their love for Christ. It is a natural thing to give to that which you love. It's a joyful thing to give that to that which you worship. And for Mary, it was reasonable. And for us, as we sit here today, and as I've wrestled through this week, going, what do we do with this? How do I understand this when I find that I value other things more than Christ? Or at least certain things. There's a a level or a gauge that I see, well, this might be worth Christ, or this might. But for Mary, she identified what had absolute value, and it was Jesus Christ. And as we, if we want to grow in this way, we want to grow in our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to capture the essence of what it means to be a worshiper, we need to learn from Mary and learn from this episode, from this scene. And as we see the infinite value of Christ and we see the infinite value of his work and the grace that was lavished on us, that was poured out on us with great expense, without any reserve, it should cause us to do the same. It should evoke the same kind of response as we see that. The same kind of response as we see in Mary in her life. You know, in fact, it's the only thing that really explains the early church. It's the only thing that really explains how they would give of their lives and give of their possessions so easily for the proclamation and the spreading of the gospel. It's the only thing that would make sense of that. And as you look out through church history, you find account of account of men and women who would lay down their lives willingly that the gospel would go. And you go, it seems like a waste. I don't understand how they do that. And yet, when you realize that Christ is that worth that much to them, and as we in modern America figure out what that means and learn and grow, we need to understand the same thing, the great value of Christ. It makes sense of what's happened and how the church has grown. This last week, or a couple days ago, I was at the table talking with my kids, and, and I, my daughter asked, Daddy, what are you preaching on? And I said, I said I'm talking on this account, this, this episode, this scene where this woman comes and pours this real expensive perfume on Jesus, you know. And, you know, I said, what's amazing about that is that it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that she would do that. And, and Lindsay just real quickly looked at me and she goes, do you mean like George Mueller did? And we had just finished reading a biography of George Mueller who was a, who was a, a missionary and a pastor in Bristol, England in the, in the 1800s who had given of all of himself and all of his wealth and everything he had to help build orphanages and to preach the gospel and take the gospel around the world. And the, as we read through this account after account after account, he gave this up and he gave that up and he trusted God in this way and he trusted God in that way. And we're reading it as a family and went, oh my goodness, this guy's nuts. And yet God provided. He saw God provide and take care of him. And he knew the worth of Christ. And my daughter got it and she said, you mean like George Mueller? It doesn't make any sense, just like it didn't make sense what he did. Yes, just like that. It didn't even make any sense what he did, but it makes sense when you see the worth of Christ. And only then, when you see the worth of Christ, does it make any sense. William Borden is another individual I've come to to learn about. He was a missionary, but he died at 25 years of age. In 1887, he was born. He was a millionaire, even at his birth. He was heir to the Borden fortune, the dairy fortune. He went on to Yale, graduated from Yale, went on to Princeton Seminary with a heart to take the gospel around the world. 
went to Egypt to learn the Arabic language so he could more effectively reach Muslims. Within four months of, of getting to Egypt, he died of spinal meningitis. Four months, not even making it to the mission field, he died of spinal meningitis. You might, you might know the story. It's an amazing story. But as he, he wrote, just, prior, or just after his decision to, be, to go to the mission field before he entered Yale, he wrote in his Bible those two words, no reserves. And then following his graduation from Yale, he was offered several lucrative job, had job offers. And he turned them all down because God had called him to the mission field. And he went to Princeton Seminary to prepare for the mission field. And he wrote upon that decision to turn the job offers down, no retreats. And then the last three months of his life as he spent it in Egypt, contracted spinal meningitis and he died. And yet we have penned in his Bible just prior to his death, the final two words, no regrets. The, his biographer wrote this about him uh, in an introduction to his, his biography. She says, at his death, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. It seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. He literally gave away his inheritance and he gave away his life as a privilege to following Christ. Nothing is ever wasted on Christ. And I think this story of Mary, as we look at her, we were reminded as the disciples ask, what a waste. Jesus says, there is no waste. There is nothing that's wasted on me. There's nothing we can give to him that is ever thrown away. There's no expense that's too great. Jesus will receive and he'll cherish the gift of every yielded heart that we bring, great or small. He will take it and he will use it. Nothing is ever wasted on Christ. As we look at this picture of Mary as she pours this out, we recognize there was nothing wasted. We recognize that she valued Christ so much that there was no expense, really. There was cost, but the return was much greater. And my, my question, and we read in the, the profession of faith following the offertory, the, the passage in Philippians where Paul himself says, I count all things a loss. I count all things a loss in comparison to knowing Christ, the great worth of knowing Christ. And he, Paul does the same thing. He says, in light of knowing Christ, there's nothing else that can compare when we understand who he is and what he has done. And Mary gives us a picture of that same heart, that same it, if you will, of the follower, the worshiper of Christ. Picture of what's essential, indispensable, that aspect of the follower of Christ that truly makes us his well, my question, even as we say, okay, that's what it is. That's what it means. That's what this picture means, this great worth of Christ. How do we grow in that? What is it that we do? If you're like me, again, I look at this and say I'm so far from that. And there's a few things I want to mention I think are helpful. At one level, it's God's grace. It's going to grow any of this in us. I know that to be the case. The first thing we need to do, though, is sit at the feet of Jesus. We need to take time to listen to him. Take time to sit there and stop, put our stuff down. The busyness of our lives, turn off the TV, I'm speaking to myself, and listen and read to him, read from him. 
George Mueller, the guy I referred to earlier, the, 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 uh, the guy who started the orphanages in Bristol, five orphanages, 1,500 or orphans by the end of his ministry there. He preached every Sunday. He had a missions agency, collected money, on and on it goes. He read his Bible over 300 times from cover to cover in the 70 years that he was a believer. Over 300 times, on an average of four times a year, he would read his Bible. And for us, to spend time in the Word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time worshiping together, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Secondly, that will enable us and cultivate this growth is to remember all that he's done. Remember what he has broken and lavished and poured out on us. Remember that he was broken, that he kept nothing back in saving us. Thirdly, we need to be thankful in all things. To be thankful to grow and to cultivate an attitude, an attitude of gratitude. To de develop that. And you've heard Bill say this in the past. And it's so helpful that this gratitude grows not as we compare what we have with what we want or what we have with what we need. That's not going to grow gratitude. What will grow gratitude is we compare what we have with what we deserve. What we have in Christ with what we deserve, death. Eternity separated from him and we have eternal life. And as we compare those two, we realize, oh my goodness, I've got so much. So to cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Fourth, I think will help us grow is to rest and just to grow in grace over time find myself catching and grabbing and trying to keep a hold of all the things that I have, my desires, my wants, the, the things that I have, and yet I must look to him for the grace to let go of these things. It's a lifetime of learning and trusting and tasting and seeing that Christ is good. To see that he is worth whatever it takes, whatever I must give up, whatever he calls to give up, he is worth of that. And it will be a lifetime of counting all things of loss in comparison to knowing the great worth of Christ. It's a lifetime thing, and it's a work that he will do in us. And the fifth thing I think will help us is to look for opportunities for Christ to prove his worth to us. To look for opportunities for Christ to prove his worth to us. I think we need to trust him and say, I think you're worth this. I believe you are. Would you demonstrate that for me? Would you demonstrate that to our family? And I don't know what the flask is in your life that you have to break. For each one of us, it's a little different, and it looks different at different points in our lives. That thing that we're hoarding, we're keeping, but the thing of great value that Christ will call us to break and to give to him. But to be willing to do that and to find that he is worthy, and to find that he will prove himself to us as we do that. Well, why is this text here? It's here as a picture. Words can't hardly explain. I can't tell you how to be a good Christian but this picture, as we look into it and we see what it is, we see what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a worshiper of, her, of his, to value him as Mary did in the situation, and for us to, to pursue that. I want to conclude with this, this final statement that Jesus says as he orients everything now. He says his intentions. I want to make worshipers, and this is what a worshiper looks like, but my intention isn't just here but it's around the world. In verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. See, Christ's intentions are to make worshipers like this worldwide. That what she has done is a picture and it will accompany the gospel as it goes. 
We should be struck just a little bit by that statement that this gospel is going to go around the world. And certainly the hearers of the time didn't quite understand what he meant. But here we sit in Lawrence, Kansas, remembering this event, remembering what this woman did. And why is it that he tied the gospel going forward with her act? Why are the two connected? Is it some sort of reward for her? Is he rewarding her? This is a good thing. I want to reward you. So we're going to tell the story about you. I don't think it is. She didn't need any reward. She already had what she wanted. But rather, what we see here is a picture of the sacrifice and the devotion of love that must accompany the gospel when it goes. If the gospel is to go, it must have a picture of this with it. The sacrifice and devotion must be connected with the gospel if it's going to go forward and if it's going to stay the gospel. This picture of worship will propel it and it will protect both the gospel. It will move it forward and at the same time it will keep it and preserve it as not a list of things that you have to do, but rather this is a heart worship. This is what this is about. It's about worshiping and finding Christ to be worth everything we have. And so that's why this picture is, is connected and must accompany the gospel when it goes around the world. And so we read it this morning, we look at it, and we go, I want that. I want to be like that. I want to love and value Christ like that, even though I find much in me that doesn't. But Christ will. The scope of Christ's desires, his intentions, that this gospel would go to the entire world and that worshipers would be made who worship like this. I don't know about you, but as we look at this next year, and I don't know if you do anything with this uh, as we enter 2008, uh, sometimes I do and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but my heart and my desire, my own life, and for our congregation, Bill echoed this as we talked this last week, it's that we would have it. Not just all the statistics. Not just all the things that are quantifiable. But we would have that indispensable, essential aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That we see in the life of Mary here. That we would be those who have tasted and experienced the great worth of Christ. And the love and the grace that he's lavished on us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father one level I'm afraid of, of the words that are just spoken and that we see here. Walking out and forgetting it and going, what was that again? And yet I pray for myself and for each one of us that, that we go so deep into our hearts and our lives that we'd see this picture. We'd see a picture of what it means to be a worshiper of you and see one who values you so greatly that everything else pales in comparison and indeed only finds value in relation to you. Would you do that in us? We submit ourselves to you and ask that you would do that. We need you to do that because we've tried on our own and it doesn't work. We're too quickly and easily lured by the world. Help us to sit at your feet. Help us to remember what you've done. Help us to be thankful, to walk in your grace, and to test you in a good kind of way, a testing in which you will prove your great worth to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would ask you to stand for the benediction. The, the response to the benediction isn't easy to say or to mean. Uh, 
I wasn't sure how to put it together. It is, I will count all as lost to know Christ. Um, I will count all as lost to know Christ. Hallelujah. Even as we say that, we recognize it's something that he will enable us to say and to mean. And even the benediction, the words, the benediction I'm going to give will help us because it says that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. And indeed, we need that power to enable us to count all things as loss. So receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, I will count all as loss to know Christ. Hallelujah.